Hello, listeners, book lovers, and friends. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Holly Payne, the host and producer of Page One, a podcast that celebrates the stories and craft that go into writing the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. So why create a podcast about the first page? All master storytellers have a secret. Their first page is often their most rewritten page because it has to work so hard to achieve so much, hooking the reader, hooking you. And for those of us intrigued by how master storytellers work their magic, I thought it'd be a lot of fun to talk to the world's most beloved authors about the craft. And today, we have the great delight of talking with New York Times bestselling novelist and Edgar Award winner, Deanna Rayborn, about her first contemporary novel, Killers of a Certain Age, featuring four female assassins who must band together to take out their nemesis as they prepare for retirement. The book was published in September by Berkeley, an imprint of Penguin Random House. And before we get started, I want to share a little bit about Deanna. She's an amazing author with a very interesting start. She's a sixth-generation native Texan and graduated with a double major in English and history from the University of Texas at San Antonio. She married her college sweetheart and is the mother of one and makes her home now in Virginia. She has written 23 novels. Okay, let's talk 21 and two novellas, which we've just discussed before we started recording. And some have been nominated for numerous awards, including the Edgar 2RT Reviewer's Choice Awards, the Agatha 2 Dillis Wins, and A Last Laugh. She launched a new Victorian mystery series with the 2015 release of A Curious Beginning, featuring intrepid butterfly hunter and amateur sleuth Veronica Speedwell. Veronica's second adventure is A Perilous Undertaking, and book three, A Treacherous Curse, was nominated for the Edgar Award which is such a high accolade for a writer in this genre. Her other book, A Dangerous Collaboration, was released in 2019, and she has just been on fuego with one book after the other, including this one, which we're going to dive into in a second. And A Murderous Relation appeared in 2020, and An Unexpected Peril was published just last year. The last Veronica Speedwell venture, An Impossible Imposter, was published last year. Now, you can find her social media links, blogs, contests, and upcoming appearances at her awesome website at deannarayborn.com. It's D-E-A-N-A-R-A-Y-B-O-U-R-N.com. You should check it out. It's an awesome author website, too. So Deanna Rayborn, welcome to Page One. What a delight to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for the invitation, Holly. This is going to be a great time today. I know our listeners are eager to learn from you. So let's jump into your latest novel, Killers of a Certain Age, which has become an instant New York Times bestseller and has been described by BuzzFeed as Golden Girls meets James Bond thriller, which I love. (laughs) I love it. It's in Hollywood. They try to do the hybrid and I nailed it Uh on this one. They absolutely have. It's getting a lot of Golden Girls meets Killing Eve, Golden Girls meets Atomic Blonde. So basically, whatever your favorite action thing is, just throw it in there with Golden Girls and it's fine. It's a good cop. This book is available, everyone, in hardcover right now and on audio and ebook on Amazon. It's also in libraries and in your favorite bookstores, which I encourage everyone to go and support. And because we avoid all spoilers on page one, I'm only going to read the summary for Killers of a Certain Age which is featuring four female assassins who must band together to take out their nemesis as they prepare for retirement. So here goes. It's okay if I read this summary, right? Absolutely. Okay. Older women often feel invisible, but sometimes that's their secret weapon. 
They spent their lives as the deadliest assassins in a clandestine international organization. But now that they're 60 years old, four women friends can't just retire. It's kill or be killed. Billy, Mary Alice, Helen, and Natalie have worked for the Museum, an elite network of assassins, for 40 years. Now their talents are considered old school and no one appreciates what they have to offer in an age that relies more on technology than people skills. But when the foursome is sent on an ex all expenses paid vacation to mark their retirement, they're targeted by one of their own. Only the board, the top level members of the museum can order the termination of field agents and the women realize they've been marked for death. Now to get out alive, they have to turn against their own organization, relying on experience in each other to get the job done, knowing that working together is the secret to their survival. They're about to teach the board what it really means to be a woman and a killer of a certain age. <laughs> I love this summary. Did you write this, by the way? I tinkered with it. Yeah. I yeah. It, it. it was a bit of a group effort. I think my editor had her red pen on it at one point. And yeah, I did. I did a fair bit of it. It's got a lot of you in it. I can feel the resonance. <laughs> the exterior style is yeah. coming out loud and clear. And for those people listening, this podcast is really for readers who want to connect and know the magic, what's behind their favorite books, but also aspiring authors. And so whoever's out there wondering or working on your book, someday you're going to have to write the summary for your own books. Take a page from these masters because as you said, it is a group effort, but that, that's a great summary. <laughs> oh, and, it, and writing those is the worst. There, there are things that I absolutely hate to write that are just part of the job that come with it. And writing a synopsis, writing a summary, writing back cover copy, writing bio, any biography, short or long of my, all of that. I hate doing all of them. And I do it because I have to, but oh man. Yeah, it's, it's so much easier to write a novel. I know, exactly. <laughs> it's like, how do you condense 100,000 words into 250? It reminds me of one of Winston Churchill's memos where he said, if, this would have been shorter if I'd had more time. It's so much harder to be succinct and to edit yourself down into something that's really beautifully clear and concise. Yeah, so thank you to the marketing team at Berkeley and Penguin uh, Random House for like, bringing their A-game to this summary because you guys like. nailed it. So this book has been described as an action-packed female-centric thriller that celebrates friendship and hand-to-hand -hand combat. So I am really excited. I want to dive into this bevy of badassery, if you will. <laughs> and I want to ask you, can you read the first page for us, please? I will. Chapter one. November 1979. My mother always says it's common as pig tracks to go around with a run in your stocking, Helen says, eyeing Billy's ripped hosiery critically. Billy rolls her eyes. Helen, it's murder, not cotillion. It's not murder, Helen corrects. It's an assassination, and you can make an effort to look nice. Besides, they're supposed to believe we're stewardesses, and no stewardess would be caught dead with torn pantyhose. Helen brandishes a familiar plastic egg. I brought spares. Please go change while you still have time. I'll start the coffee. The run is so tiny, tiny, only Helen would have noticed it. Billy opens her mouth to argue and closes it again when she sees the tightness around Helen's lips. Helen is nervous, and that means her eye for detail is hyper-focused, searching out things to worry about. Better for her to fuss about snagged pantyhose than any of the thousand other things that could go wrong on their first mission, Billy decides. You really just have this unbelievable way of opening chapters. So I have a couple of those that we'll get to later, but they're just tasty and yummy. And you just say, <laughs> and I just smile. I'm like, she just nailed it. For people who aren't familiar with your work, 
Dana Reborn has written these series and they, your grandmother, as I understand it, was, is English or was English, right? Yes. My father's mother was English. So there was very much a, an English influence in a lot of the books that I read as a child. And so you're writing mostly historical pieces, mm -hmm. right? And this is your first contemporary novel. It is. Yeah. So I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about the concept and the hook because so much of the first page is about that. And as a summary is really difficult, right? To wrestle this entire plot into 200 words or less. How did you come to this particular story? Because it is very different. It captures strong female characters in your other books. But when did you have the aha? This is what I'm going to write next. It didn't actually start with me. It started with my publisher. They were apparently sitting down having a conversation one day in the office about the fact that there are just not a ton of books about older women doing kick-ass things. And they sat around and noodled it over and said, yeah, we need more of these. Who could we get to write this? And apparently my name is the one that came up immediately. By consensus, they all went, yep, she's the logical choice, which I took as a huge compliment. And my editor called and basically said, would you be interested in writing a book about older women doing something kick-ass? And that's literally the brief. That's it. We don't care how old they are. We don't care what they're doing. That's it. Would you be interested? And I went off and thought about it and I came back and said, yeah, absolutely. But here's what I want to do. I want them to be 60 something because I've never written older than I am. I've only written younger. And to me, 60 is a very interesting transitional age now. It used to be like firmly into old age, senior citizen years. And now it's not. Now it's much more of a transition age, which I find fascinating. I told them I also wanted it to be, I wanted these characters to be assassins. I said, I wanted to be killers because I can't think of anything more kick-ass than the people who go out literally doing that for a living. And they said, great, we love that. And I said, and I want it to be a contemporary. And that was the needle scratch on the record moment where they were like, are you sure? Because that just shocked them. They didn't have any idea that I was interested in writing a contemporary. And I felt like this was my opportunity. I've been just waiting for the right project at the right time to take that risk. And it just felt like this was going to be it. And to their everlasting credit, they let me. Because when you are a successful historical writer, they love to leave you as a historical writer because they know that you're going to continue to do well at that. And you've established a readership, you've established your voice, you know exactly what you're doing. And I just cannot thank them enough for the fact that they had faith enough to let me take a, just a tremendous risk and write a contemporary because it required finding an entirely new author voice that I just did not have safely tucked away in that wheelhouse. That was something I had to go out and find, but they let me do it and bless them forever for that because it was the hardest book I've ever written, but it was also by far the most fun. And I always have fun writing my books. So the fact that this was just off the charts fun was unexpected and wonderful. It's extraordinary. You don't ever hear of this. It sounds like a Hollywood story where the A-list screenwriter is called in the office and, yeah. and they're saying, hey, you, we want you to write this. Yeah. What do you think it was that they were identifying that you would be the one to be able to do this? How did you close the deal when you were trying to convince them that you could take this on, even though you hadn't landed on that voice yet, which is the next question we're going to get into, because that is juicy stuff. It wasn't a matter of convincing them at all. I just said, I want to do it. 
they came back a couple of times just to, are you sure this is what you want to do? Are you sure you don't want to do historical? Just to double check. And they wanted to make sure that my commitment was sound and that I was completely prepared for what I was getting into. And that was it. They just, they let me do it because I said, yeah, I'm sure this is what I want for this book. And as far as how they settled on me, the story, as I was told, is they wanted someone who could write. What they were looking for is almost over the top, super strong female characters. And they wanted real kick-ass energy. And they wanted somebody who was of a certain age to do it because they felt like that would really bring the whole package. I've heard the story from about four different people who were in the room at the time, and it's all the same, that the light bulb went out and they all went, oh, Deanna needs to do it. And, you know, that that was it. And I talked to the vice president of PR who was in the room at the time. And I talked to my editor who was there at the time and the editorial director. And so I, I've gotten the story a number of different ways. And it was very much a consensus that this was just going to be a really good fit for me. I take it as a tremendous compliment that they looked at my books and they said, yeah, we've got somebody who writes really strong women already, and we think she can translate this to an older character and really make them vibrant and dynamic. They obviously made such a great choice because your readership is always looking for something that reflects their story. And especially women in this particular storyline are women who were of that turning point in our own country's history in terms of women's liberation and everything else. Right. And I love that it hits on some historical things because your chapters go back and forth between the 1970s, the late 70s, and modern times. And I was told by another author that the 80s now are considered historical fiction. I know. Can like, you stand it? I, I gotta, the first time I like, saw that on Twitter, I was like, no. I think what you might be doing with this book, and I might have to have you back for another episode so we can kind of <laughs> catch up a year from now, because the fact is this book was an instant bestseller. I just love that you're making this age group relevant. Yeah, and that's part of the reason that I wanted to include the flashback scenes, because about a quarter of the book is flashback to when they're recruited, when they're training, earlier missions. And part of it is because those things touch on what they're actually doing during the present day action of the book. But it also gives us a chance to look at who they were when they were 20, when they were 25, when they were 30, so that we understand how little they've changed in a lot of ways on that journey to 60 but also how long they have been friends and how that dynamic has played out and how they have each other's backs. But it also means that we have characters on the page who are 25 because we're seeing those scenes with them as younger women. And, and we've got a few characters who are in their 30s. So we have women all across the spectrum of age. And it was what was really important to me. And above all, what I want for readers from this book is to have fun because I think we are so accustomed to seeing 60-year-old women dealing with a difficult medical diagnosis, or my spouse just left me for a 25-year-old and she's having twins, or my elderly parent needs caregiving. And we don't see enough projects of women of that age just having a good time. Even if the stakes are high, even if it's something like, oh, wow, I could be dead tomorrow, at least they're having a good time in the meanwhile. And they're still having adventures and they're not quite ready to hang it up and be done. And they become role models. Aging has come to mean so many different things now with these advances and health and technology and everything else. But now you have this opportunity where 
you can thrive. You've mentioned funds several times. And mm -hmm. for those people who haven't visited your website, and it is a beautiful author website. Thank you. It's very new. Okay. We did a full revamp about two months ago. It's such a pretty job. I think it's lovely. You have a letter to the reader. And I'm going to quote you because I found this letter to be very revealing and also a segue into what I want to talk about next, because you've mentioned the word fun. And this is what Deanna says. It's not actually printed in the book. But if you go to the website, again, DeannaRayborn.com, you can see this. And it says, she writes, I'm not sure I've ever had as much fun with any group of characters as I've had with the cast of killers of a certain age. Writing about these four dynamic women has been an absolute joy. I've never had the chance to explore a set of friendships the way I have in this book. And I found myself thinking of all the incredible women I've known throughout my life, long lost relatives, colleagues, friends, and even the occasional frenemy. <laughs> the one thread that connects them all is strength. So there's two mm -hmm. things here. I want to get back to the word fun. This is why I love doing the podcast because there's so much joy in the show and what we get to talk about is what we love doing. But you bring that into this book. You mentioned that it was the hardest thing you've ever done. So we want to unpeel that. <laughs> I can tell the way that you laugh, right? There's so much cleverness without trying to be clever. And I love that because that is such a mark of genius. When you read it on the page, it doesn't feel like it was an effort. But because it was so deft, you know that there was a lot of thought <laughs> making it work. So like there are some things and I knew when I was doing them, I was like, God, only another writer is going to know how hard this was. Only another writer. And I've had some conversations on Twitter where people are like, look, man, I see what you did there. I know how hard that was. I'm like, thank you. Because the idea is that you want for a reader for it to appear effortless and for them not to notice it. But man, there's so much going on behind the curtain. If you were a dancer or an athlete, right? I mean, like that turn sure. right. It's just how many hours have you practiced landing or getting off the floor or whatever it is, marking your spot. It's well, the same way with watch. Yeah, you watch an Olympic gymnast and you're like, I could do that tumbling pass. When in reality, like I can't even do a summer. But you look at and it just feels like they're in the flow and they're flying and they take you with them. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what that's you're doing. That's such a joy. Yeah. You're doing that with us. Thank you. That was the goal. <laughs> it was a great job. You've achieved it clearly. The book was an instant bestseller. So you've achieved it. So let's back up to finding the courage to do it because yeah. you sat in a room with these folks, the head of publicity, your editor, everyone else right. at Penguin Random House. And you literally took the call. This was like the hero's journey, right? Yeah. It's like yeah, the for third sure. aspect, like answering the call. You're like, right. okay, that's me. And then did you walk out and go, what have I just done? Or did you go, now what? It was all over the phone. And literally every time we'd have one of these conversations and hang up the phone, I would turn and look at my husband and go, oh, holy crap, what am I doing? What am I doing? And he's had a theory for a very long time. If you've ever seen, I pass these out at book signings a lot of times. They're my business cards. And they feature a Victorian acrobat in this beautiful red petticoat on a tightrope. And the reason for that is because I love the metaphor of always doing this risky thing, never really having stable ground underneath you and never really knowing if you're going to make it to the end of that rope. And my husband was the first one to point out to me that I love nothing more than taking risks and just scaring the bejesus out of myself with work because my personal life is incredibly stable. He and I have been together for 35 years now, since our first date when we were in college. I am a wildly spoiled only child with parents who still 
take incredible care of me. I have a wildly spoiled only child who's amazing and married the sweetest boy in the world. So I have a great son-in-law. I have these wonderful relationships in my personal life. So there's not drama. There's not stress. There's not angst. There's not risk. And so where I get that is with my work. And I just do the thing that's going to terrify me. And sometimes that means jumping, even when you know hey man, there's not a net there and I hope to God the wings pop out because otherwise I'm going to crash hard. It's awesome because then you end up with this great balance in your life. A lot of authors are writing from a deep source of pain. It's really great to talk to an artist whose foundation is so supported and so healthy mm -hmm. that you can throw yourself into this new path that's just opened up. You've opened it up to yourself. I see there's definitely prequels you could do out of Killers of a Certain Age by lots of assassination attempts from the 70s on up to now from each one's particular point of view. I'm like, oh my God, you've just created another series. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> All I can say about that is discussions are happening and people are talking. So we will see. Finding the contemporary voice was the hardest part of this. Developing a plot that wasn't specifically a mystery plot was a challenge because I've never had to do that before. Everything I've ever written has been structured as a mystery. And that's a very specific structure that I internalized in my mystery reading as a kid. And it's just what I instinctively reach for when I'm plotting. So that that was a bit of a challenge, but the voice was the thing that absolutely just threw me. For a long time, I had trouble finding the voice for this, and I struggled with it so hard, and I kept trying to rewrite certain scenes, and one scene in particular I must have written five times and just could not seem to get it. And finally, in frustration one day, I just said, screw it. I'm going to stop trying to write it, and I'm just going to tell it. And I told it in my own voice and handed it off to my husband and said, and he doesn't usually read stuff before it goes in to my editor, but this time I needed an extra pair of eyes. I said, I have no objectivity anymore left for this scene. I can't tell you what's up, what's down. I just need a fresh look at it. Tell me what you think. And he read it and he started laughing. And he said, babe, it's your Twitter feed. This is your Twitter feed. This is what it sounds like. And I went, Nailed it. That's it. That's what I needed. The trick for me was to stop trying to write it and just tell it. And then I knew exactly how to write the book from that point on. You're listening to the Page One podcast that celebrates the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. I'm Holly Payne, your host and producer, and I interview the world's master storytellers about the struggles and stories that go into writing the first page of their books. As an author and writing coach, I know that the first page of any book has to work so hard to do so much, hook the reader, hook all of us. So I thought it would be a lot of fun to ask your favorite master storytellers how they do their magic to hook you. And after the first few episodes, it occurred to me that maybe someone listening might be curious about how their first page sits with an audience. Writing takes courage and courage needs a community so I've opened up the podcast to any writer who wants to submit the first page of a book they're currently writing. If your page is chosen, you'll be invited onto the show to read it and get live feedback from one of page one's master storytellers. If you're curious about this, listen to episode six with Daniel Handler, AKA Lemony Snicket, and the courageous Hillary Hamilton, who submitted the first page of her book called Boobs. I love when there's a chance for a new author to get discovered and page one exists to inspire, celebrate, and promote the work of both known and unknown creative talent. If this excites you, please submit your page at hollylynnpayne.com backslash community. 
That's hollylynnpaincom backslash community. And now back to the show. It took you apparently 14 years to actually, to get published. It's basically 2007 to now. It's been 15 years. Do you think that this book has allowed you to really claim your voice in this lifetime? Do you feel more rooted than ever in terms of your writing and more confident because you uncovered the voice, which is yours? Absolutely more confident. To be clear, my historical voice is still also very much me. There are aspects of that, like you said, that do translate to the contemporary. I've got, I always have strong female characters. I always have a sparky dialogue. I always have certain themes like justice is more important than the law. Sound family is as important as blood family. Those are things that always crop up in my writing. What this has done is it has, I hit the New York Times bestseller list probably I don't know, eight years ago, maybe 10 years ago, and not since then. When I hit it then, it was the extended list. And so there's always been that little voice in the back of my head going, that was a fluke. That was a fluke. You're a good writer, but that was a fluke. And to have this one out of the gate, it's number nine on the number I the call last night and just started screaming because the one thing that kept coming into my head is, you're not a fluke. You're not a one-trick pony. This is, you You re, You have put in the work. You have this amazing team around you and you can do this and you have done this. And that was just the most gratifying thing in the world to realize that I don't have to be limited and I don't have to limit myself to what I can do going forward. I've always had a theory that the book you are most terrified to write is probably the book that you eventually do need to write, but you have to do it at a time when you've got the skills to get you there. And I knew for a couple of years that I wanted to write a contemporary, but I didn't feel like my skill level was there yet to let me do it. And I still don't know if I was underestimating myself and I could have done this earlier, but I do know that the book came along at exactly the right time for me. It was very an exercise in exorcising my, I, I, basically been mad since 2016. And this book was an opportunity to deal with really strong women who are saying, yeah, we're not going to take the all these things about society that tick us off. We're not going to take these lying down. Like we, we have a plan. We have ways of dealing with this. And sometimes it's nice to just get in the skin of people who are affecting change and who are doing incredible things. And then you can just go, oh man, that felt good. That felt good. Because the people we bump off in this book, come on, none of them are a really big waste. You don't look at it and go, oh, that was sad. You look at them and you think, you're a drug trafficker, you're a human trafficker, you're an arms dealer, you're a Nazi. Maybe it's not the worst thing in the world that somebody thought you were worth assassinating. So it gives us this vicarious way of bringing the world into balance for just the time that we're with the book and saying, you know what, some people do create justice in the world. And some people do give us that kind of happy ever after that we need because the bad guys don't profit and the bad guys don't win in the end. And we feel like we can shut the book and go, okay, people got their comeuppance. They got what they deserved. And right. Yeah. And justice is served and you're cleaning the dark barnacles off the boat. Exactly. Exactly. The goal was to do it in a fun way so that people could have a laugh at the same time. Because I think now more than ever, it's really crucial. Some people process grief and anger and feelings of just kind of rage at injustice by going into darker bits of culture and reading things that are heavy and watching series that that are really just stripping everything down to that really raw primal. 
Other people need a lighter touch. They need to laugh their way through it and maybe just take a little bit of a break and come back rested and refreshed to, to fight again another day. And I'm one of those people who can't, like I'm a huge chicken. I don't, I didn't even start reading thrillers until a couple of years ago because I find them vaguely terrifying. And so I don't like really dark, intense, heavy books and TV series and movies because that's, that, that's a lot to process. And sometimes it's just too much. And I need my justice served up with a side of wise ass. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And maybe a good stiff cocktail, right? Yeah, for sure. With that said, you're a master as well at creating worlds. And I think that's also one of the signatures of your series and lending itself to this and what I hope is going to be a series in some way that we've talked about here, touched on. Can you talk to us about how you found your way to the assassin? Just like, what was the research you did? And did you, I'm always curious about this because as an author and a former journalist, that's one of my favorite things to do is just lose myself in the research. And until I literally feel it like in my DNA, and I'm like, I think I had this kind of, even though I I'm, could never be an actress, I just feel like I'd have to do the work like this to step into sure. my role. So yeah. how was that for you? What did you do to understand this world? Because you create such a great world. And there's a lot of truth in, and obviously you've done research because mm -hmm. you had to know something about how assassins think, how they operate to bring in all the little nods and nuance to the characters' actions. I love research. To me, one of the most pleasurable aspects of the job, right? You get to, it's like when you were seven years old and you get obsessed with dinosaurs or ballerinas or whatever, and you go check out an armful of books from the library and you learn everything you possibly could about that one subject. We get to do that now as adults and we get paid for it. It's amazing. Somebody wants us to be an authority or to geek out about stuff. And I love that. In this case, I knew that my assassins were not going to have the benefit of the resources that they ordinarily would as part of their organization. Because if they're conducting an assassination for the organization, they basically have their own version of Q, James Bond's quartermaster, who sets them up with devices and untraceable Russian poisons and all sorts of fun stuff. I stripped that all away from them. I didn't give them because I did not want them to rely on technology. I wanted them to rely on things that code feminine in our society, which are interpersonal relationships, observation, being unobserved because you are underestimated and you're not seen because you're older, because you're female. I wanted them to be thrown back on the things that you can't just, you can't solve these problems with a rocket launcher. You've got to have the personal experience and you've got to have the instincts to be able to do this. And that's what I wanted for them. So I did not actually have to do a really deep dive with technology because I wasn't letting them have it. And the rest of the research, some of it, I've been to every one of the settings that I describe in the book, with the exception of one. And it's not the one you're thinking because the most gruesome setting in the book I have actually been to, and it was nastier than I described and so worth going to. But it was a wonderful opportunity for me to look at these places I've been and say, how can I use this? How can I use that? And bring them in. I tend to be very sensory in my writing. I try to think about what does the place smell like? What are the what are the ambient noises? What are what's everything that that we're going to experience as a human animal in this setting? Um, 
And as far as the the technical research of the assassinations, I keep joking about how many watch lists I'm probably on, but I'm just going to ask, why do I have a passport, Holly? Why do they let me travel? I don't know. I always have to Google, like I have bookmarked at this point, how much blood a human body has to lose before you die, because I never can remember it. And it's one of those things, it's a fact you think I would have at the tip of my fingers, and I really don't. I always have to go search it. So I searched it a lot, which I feel like is another big red flag. But I have a couple of people I can go to ask some very specific medical questions if I need, which is enormously helpful. And one of them in particular is mentioned in the acknowledgments because he was enormously helpful. And a lot of it is just what it comes down to for me is what is the most fun? What am I going to enjoy reading about? Um, What am I going to enjoy immersing myself in? For the reading, for the brainstorming, for the writing, for the rewriting, for the rewriting again, for the every aspect of it. You're with these characters so much. You're with these plot elements so much that if I'm not having fun with it, I'm not entirely certain how to make sure the reader has fun with it. So that's always my kind of litmus test for everything is, is this going to be fun for me? And if it is, great. If it's not, it's probably not going to make it into the book because I'm going to get bored and say, no, I don't want to do that. (laughs) Well, thank you for having that be your litmus test because it makes your work so enjoyable. It's such a delight and you really do take us on these really unexpected twists, which is yet another one of your signatures. And one of the things too that I admire so much about you is your tenacity. The tenacity you have in terms of when you talk about the research, and I love that you might be on a watch list. And I'm sure every author, I'm sure they probably have a list of all the authors. Oh, that's right. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. But you ne- you never give up. And writers need to know that that writing and readers also need to know that novels are the endur- endurance sport. And I always say mm-hmm. that writing is the endurance sport of the mind. And We had talked a little bit about this earlier, but it took you 14 years to get published. And those were some trying years. And we know this is not a journey for the timid or feeble-minded. So we also know, we've mentioned Dean Koontz here. He told me that it took him 15 years to finally get point of view and that he wrote a lot of bad stuff because he- Oh, I feel so vindicated by that. I mean, don't you? Can you talk about that and the grit required to endure the journey for those who are just starting out or they're on it now? Yeah. Or I- anyone who's been on it who just also needs to have that same dedication. Okay, nothing's wrong with me. This is an absolutely normal experience to have. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, too, that it's important for us to talk about the fact that it is a normal experience to have if you are pursuing traditional publishing. Because traditional publishing is a very different thing from publishing independently and getting your own work out there. They require different things of you. I am actually glad it took me that long because I wanted to be traditionally published. I wanted to work with the team. I wanted the in-house support that you get from having a big five publisher. And it did literally 14 years from the time I wrote my first book to the time I got published, or actually to the time I got my first publishing deal. It took another two years for the book to come out. And I think what kept me going throughout all of that period, there were a couple of factors. One is the fact that I'm a storyteller. It's what I've always done. Whether I'm getting published or not, I'm still writing. If my publisher dumped me tomorrow, I would still write. I would still tell stories because as an artist, that's how I process the world. That's my mechanism. Other people will interpret it through music. Other people will interpret it through painting. Mine is verbal. That's all I've got. And so that, like, I distinctly remember being 
probably four or five years old and learning how to print and being so excited because I could finally get the stories out of my head and onto paper because I literally don't remember a time that I wasn't making things up because that, that to me is just, that's just how my mind works. That's just what I do. And then when I was 23, I wrote my first novel and it was, it was not good, but it was 120,000 words. And I wrote it in six weeks, which is bonkers, like legitimately bonkers, but I was just possessed. And I wanted to make sure, like, I wanted to see if I could finish a book. I wanted to see if I could do it. And I did, like, I did legitimately finish this book. It was a complete novel. I sent it into a publisher that was, because I didn't do my homework very well. And I sent it into a publisher that was publishing like 80,000 word novels. (laughs) And so the editor sent it back and said, yeah, I'm not going to publish this. But he said, I think your writing is absolutely wonderful. And on, on the strength of that, I had the confidence to put something better together and go get myself an agent. And she tried for a number of years to place me with other projects that just we were not getting any traction with. And finally, she said one day, I want you to stop writing for a year. I think you need to stop writing. Just take a break. And I said, what am I supposed to do for a year? And she said, I want you just to read. She said, because you don't know who you are as a writer yet. And the only way to figure out who you are as a writer is to know who you are as a reader. And I thought that she was just professionally breaking up with me in a really, really nice way. Because I said, what am I supposed to do at the end of that year? And she said, you'll know. And I thought, I am never going to talk to this woman again as long as I like. That's just, she's never going to take my calls again. So I went off for a year and I did exactly as she told me to, mostly because I was just so discouraged that I couldn't figure out how to put my next story together. And I thought, yeah, break is a great idea. And at the end of that year, I looked at everything I had read and I realized they were all mysteries. They all had a British sense of humor. They all had a strong female central character. They all had all these specific, they all had an element of romance to them. And when I got to the end of this list of things that these books all had in common, I went, crap, that is a blueprint. That is a blueprint for the book I need to be writing because this is what I love to read. And I sat down and it took me two years to write a novel based on that. And when I finished it, I sent it off to her with a little, hey, remember me note. And a week later, she called me and she said, this is it. You, you did it. She said, this I can sell. And it took two years to get it placed with the correct house. But when we did, it was a three book deal. And I have never been out of contract since then, because that book was Silent in the Grave, which was the the first book that I ever had published. And I've been fortunate enough to be in print ever since then. And I'm with a different publishing house now. I'm with the fine folks at Berkeley, which is an offshoot of Penguin, and could not be happier with where I am. And I feel like there's a lucky star up there somewhere. There's a lucky star, maybe, but my <laughs> hair is sticking up right now on, on my arms and my head. I just think this is so important for people to hear. And it's even important for me to be reminded of myself. And because I'm in the throes of that waiting here, it's like glacial, right? You're waiting, you're waiting and waiting to hear, but to never give up on yourself. What an incredible act of love that this agent, this particular woman gave to you to say, hey, pause. Yeah read, mm-hmm. come back to me. She and I have been together for about 25 years now. On a Wait, We have to mention her name. Pam Hopkins of Hopkins Literary Associates. She's amazing. And I think sometimes we, we don't talk quite enough about the importance of the author-agent relationship and how if your publishing journey includes an agent, it's 
basically a professional marriage. This is a person who is going to see you at your worst. This is a person who has to have your back. This is a person whose values have to align with yours because they're negotiating on your behalf and who has to always have your best interests at heart. And having been with her for 25 years, it's it's one of those relationships that I'm very proud to have sustained. I think it's also really important to acknowledge the role of privilege that I've had because in those years when I was not being published, I taught for three years. I was a terrible teacher, very bad at it, very glad not to do it after I quit. What were you teaching? English. Most a little bit of history, but mostly English and trying to infuse iambic pentameter with enough joy to get sophomores excited about it. That was not my that was not my journey. But I was very lucky because my husband has been incredibly supportive from day one. And when I quit teaching, that was when we had our daughter and I was a stay-at-home mom. And the idea was that I was going to try to write and get published while I was a stay-at-home mom, which is in itself a difficult thing to do, but I did not have to work outside the home, which we thought was going to help that situation. And year after year went by and I just wasn't getting published. And the start of every school year, I would think about the fact that I had a valid teaching certificate. I was not teaching. I was not bringing money in. I was not contributing in that way to the house, even though I was contributing hugely in being the hands-on parent on a day-to-day basis for our daughter. And every year I would say to my husband, I should get a job. I should get a job. And every year he would say to me, you have a job, you're a writer, you just don't get paid for it yet. And that went on for a decade and a half before I got published. So the reason I am here, the reason I have this success is because I had an incredibly supportive partner. That's a huge privilege. It's because I had an agent who took the time to say, girl, this is what's best for you because I see where you're failing. And it's going to take a lot of work to get you where you want to be. Are you willing to put that in and to take those chances on me? And honestly, there is an element of sheer dumb luck because the very, the house that ended up taking Silent in the Grave, my agent sent it in to an editor who was actually no longer acquiring historical mystery. She had changed her focus and she picked the manuscript up and walked it across the hall to another editor who was acquiring historical mystery and said, hey, I think you need to buy this. What if she had been in a rush at going to lunch that day and said, oh, just reject it? Or what if she'd been on vacation and her slush pile had just been too big? Or it, it was a fluke. It was an absolute act of grace that this woman picked my manuscript up and walked it across the hall. And there are so many pieces that go into success. And it's very easy to look at somebody's success and say, oh, it's just been like dominoes falling. It's all been, it's all been so simple and straightforward. And it's not. Your path is so idiosyncratic. And so much of it comes down to the support of other people or timing or your own gut instinct or, or the state of the world. Because sometimes you can have the best book in the world, but if it's not the right time, And the market's not, if there are 17 vampire threesome love stories, you may have the 18th and it may be brilliant. But if that's not what the market is looking for because it's saturated, you may not get published with it at that time. And it is a heartbreaking business for a lot of reasons, a lot of reasons, but it is also greatest. It's the greatest. I literally, I have like tears in my eyes. Oh my gosh, you've done so many incredible things. And Pam Hopkins, thank you for your compassion and kindness and your tenacity. And her tenacity, (laughs) because 
Oh my gosh. I feel that clearly this is probably a whole other conversation that we'll have another day because I'm having you back on the show for sure (laughs) multiple times. And next time I'm in Virginia, I'm going to have to track you down. But honestly, you talk about one thing leads to the next and not a linear process. And I really do believe that when we're on our path and writing is such an act of courage, it really is such an act of courage because at every second you have to have such faith in the path, even with the pothole that shows up or the goblin that darts out at you on the road, you're on the right path. Even when it's starting to storm around you. I just love that your story is one where you've always had that net. You've had the net of incredible support and you're so humble and gracious about that and acknowledging that privilege because look what it does. And I wish the world could hear this because it uh, it is such a, it really, my mother jokes all the time that it takes a village to support me and to keep me running. And it's a joke, but it's also not. I have so many incredible people who are standing behind me. And when you publish traditionally, there is a team. There is a massive group of people. If you look at the acknowledgements in any book, you see how many folks are there, whether they're your writing friends or whether they're people who work for your publisher or whoever you've gathered around you as your your found family to support you in this, it's you can't do this alone. I'm sure there are people who are publishing independently and can do all of this themselves. And oh my God, you are superheroes because I could never, I need all of these other people to bring their skills and their gifts to this because they're better at so many of these things than I am. Marketing is hard. It's really hard. It's hard. And I can't copy edit for crap because I never see my own typos. Like I need these other people around me because they're so much better at what their specialty is. And so that's why I'm incredibly grateful to have them. And it's just this book, Killers of a Certain Age, you have that teamwork among these four women that carry out their assignment. And we'll leave it at that. I want you to tell us what you're currently reading. Something that grabbed you at the beginning. I love for other readers and listeners to hear of other books that authors that we love who are masters at what they do like you who is it that you're reading i'm incredibly excited and i'm fascinated with this book it's by zoraida cordova and it's called the inheritance of orchidea divina it's such a beautiful book that it jumped out i was literally in target like shopping for groceries and saw this and just had to grab it because it was just it's a beautiful book and it jumped out at me and i love magical realism and i thought that this just seemed like such a lovely read Chapter one is entitled The Woman and the House That Had Never Been. For many mornings, there had been nothing but barren land. Then one day, there was a house, a woman, her husband, and a rooster. The Montoyas arrived in the town of Four Rivers in the middle of the night without fanfare or welcome wagons or cheesy limp green bean dishes or flaky apple pies offered in an attempt to get to know the new neighbors. Though in truth, before their arrival, the townspeople had stopped paying much attention to who came and went anymore. Finding four rivers on a map was nearly impossible, as the roads were still mostly gravel, and the memory of the place lived only in the minds of those who remained on purpose. Yes, there had been railroads once, great iron veins hammered into the rocky ground, connecting the dusty heart of a country with an identity that changed, depending on where the the lines were drawn. I just, I love that. A house, a woman, her husband, and a rooster. I have a lot of questions about the rooster. I just can't wait to get started with this one because it looks like it's got a great blurb from V.E. Schwab on on the front of it. And I think it's going to be just really lovely. And I, I don't actually read that much magical realism. So I'm excited to 
to get another opportunity to do that. It's going to be my treat for when I finish all my promo events right now. This is what I've got waiting for me and I'm very excited. And I am so grateful for you spending the time with us today. And I hope everyone is about to go out and read Killers of a Certain Age because they will be absolutely delighted and entertained. Now you understand a little more about the story behind the story. And that's just so important for people to understand what goes into books that they love. Thank you, Deanna. This has been an absolute delight. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Holly. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Page One, a podcast that celebrates the first sentence, first paragraph, and first page of a book. I'm the host and producer, Holly Payne, and I interview the world's master storytellers about the struggles and stories that go into writing the first page of their latest book. If you're an aspiring writer or a book lover curious about how stories are made, the Page One podcast offers inspiration, wisdom, and some tips of the trade from the world's greatest authors. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I can't wait for you to tune into the next one. If you like Page One, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast players. And please share this episode with your friends and family. Until then, keep writing. The world needs your stories. And keep reading. Books are medicine for the soul. I hope page one helps you discover something you'll love. If you'd like to learn more about my writing, coaching, or books, you can find me at hollylynnpayne.com or on Twitter and Instagram at hollylynnpayne. Thank you.